Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, I think we've left off our last episode about uh, libraries by talking about the Library of Alexandria, or maybe we had yes. just gotten up to that point. It would be yes, we had gotten more there. accurate. And yes. agreed to save it for next time. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, Library of Alexandria, let's call it maybe one of the most famous libraries in history. Is yes. that fair to say? I think it is probably the single most famous library in Western history. Mm-hmm. It's certainly the one that people have mourned the most. Yes. Yeah, and for good reason. We'll sort of talk about why. The amount of stuff that comes out of the library. So, yes, as a recap... Um, last time we discussed, of course, the sort of origin of the idea of libraries, which happens in the Middle East, of course, was because civilization as we define it happens there, right? Like cities. Right. Um, and therefore collections of documents, um, which of course originally is clay tablets. So we've also been talking about technology, right? Um, and how you yep. write things on them and how you start to organize them as they pile up, <laughs> um, and the idea that you can, like, write a title on something, which is probably just the first line, but um, that way you don't have to look at the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You can find out how many tablets each thing is. So are you missing a tablet? No. Um, it's not, you wouldn't call it a pagination, but it's the same idea. Yes. <laughs> it absolutely is, yeah. Um, and, of course, that is where we get things like pagination, right? So, mm -hmm. um yeah, absolutely. So this sort of the rise in technology of this in, in the West, of course, um, and in this case, the West also means the Middle East and North Africa, which is where this is all happening, after all. Um, and the beginnings of kind of categorization, so that there's a difference between the working records of your um, palace, you know, where you're recording all the stuff that people send you in tribute or whatever, um, mm -hmm. from works of literature, for example, right? And works of literature that also touch include religious hymns, epics, um, things like this. So you're starting to also get the sort of categorization of types of written records. Um, okay, we, we talked a little bit about the, think, the origins of writing as well. So, um, yes, we had gotten up to... <laughs> so the fun part, right? So we got to Greece, um, where you do have sort of private libraries... Um, and at this point, we have moved on a bit from tablets, um, other famous tablets, of course, which I don't know if we mentioned, but it is currently, we're recording this on Passover, it's about to be Easter, so other <laughs> famous tablets, for example, would include things like the Ten Commandments, of course. Um, tablets are a good technology. Oh, yeah, those are big ones. Yes. <laughs> yes, and they're, they're coming up in ritual history, you know, in the next, what, 50 days, I guess. So, um, yeah. almost. I mean, we're, yeah. I'm slightly off, but I'd have to count which day of Passover this is, and I'm not going to do the math. But anyway, which, of course, goes to show I'm not, I'm not counting the Omer, apparently. Because then I would know <laughs> how many days it is. But anyway, yes, yeah, so at some point in the next 43 days or something, we're going to get the Ten Commandments. Um, so, tablets are a great technology, but they're being displaced by... The next technology, which of course is where the Torah comes from, <laughs> which is the scroll. 
It's not where it comes from, but it is what it is. A Torah is a right. scroll. I apologize if it sounded like I said scroll, which is part of the Marvel universe. <laughs> um, whoops. So scrolls, scrolls are starting to displace tablets. Um, mm-hmm. And this is partly, of course, thanks to places like Egypt that have papyrus, particularly the type of papyrus that grows along the Nile at this time, which I believe we talked about in a previous episode when we kind of talked about manuscripts and making manuscripts. Um, there was this really special type of papyrus that grew along the Nile in Egypt that made just amazing, essentially, paper. I mean, it's not the type of pulp mm-hmm. paper, we, but basically, right? Right. Um, and it makes How amazing they scrolls. Make it? They, they took the plant, mm-hmm. and, like, I remember something, like, they you put it into sort of a grid pattern and hit it with a hammer a bunch. Yes. Yeah, it's basically a fiber. And, you know, if you think about it, of course, like plant fibers, we also talked about them when we talked about textiles, right? Like mm-hmm. cotton fibers and hemp fibers. Plant fibers are astonishingly versatile. Um, and papyrus fibers make paper. Um, and, of course, today paper is kind of like wood pulp. It's actually a similar process. They did sometimes do that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's different... Uh, you know, now we sort of think of it, I guess, as a process where you basically, like, would put it all in a blender and then mush it out. Yeah. Um, you have to have, like, a screen or something that you put it on. Right. Yeah, if you make your own paper. Um, and, yeah, they papyrus doesn't require that, um, I guess, doesn't require that many steps, basically. Doesn't require that depth of process. It. it okay. You know. It's um, more of an entry-level... Yeah. First rung on the technology ladder paper. Sort of. I mean, it can. This is, but this is why it's such an amazing fiber, right? You can mm-hmm. do all that. And so, of course, eventually you oh. do get to the point where you get really very sort of smooth paper. Mm-hmm. I mean, arguably it is paper. Obviously, that's where we get the word. Right. <laughs> and ar- arguably it is. Yeah. And the typeface. That yes. everybody hates. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> yes. Which is not so much the fault of papyrus. But yeah, no, paper. I don't is, blame the plant. No, but, um, but papyrus <laughs> is is paper, right? Paper is mm-hmm. a plant based thing. The thing is just that papyrus, unlike wood pulp, which you cannot write on. You can write on bark, obviously, but you can't. Yeah. Wood pulp doesn't become paper unless you pulp it up first. Whereas papyrus mm-hmm. does become paper. Yes, if you just pound it down and grind it smooth, so you can weave it and grind it. Or, um, yeah, you basically are, like, sanding it down to smooth it out. Oh, um, okay. And so you, yeah, so it doesn't need all those steps. It's not that it can't take them, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it does not require them. Okay. Yes. So that's its versatility, right, is that you can basically, um, yeah, weave it into a mat, just smooth it up into paper, mm-hmm. and you've got a great writing surface. Um and this, of course, a similar uh, principle will eventually, well, does apply also to parchment, um, which starts to make its way into the world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing, right? Animal skin as paper. In this case, not paper in the plant-based sense, but paper in the sense of something that is pliable that you can write on. <laughs> um, and similarly, right, you treat it um, and it goes through a process you know, not unlike leather, but you absolutely, you smooth it, you, um, you spread it 
So you thin it out, um, and you smooth it down similarly. And also similarly, if you're trying to erase stuff, right? Tablets, you cannot erase things. You can, of course, deface it. Like, Mm -hmm. you, you can gouge a word out of a tablet, but it's hard to do sometimes without breaking the tablet, ultimately, right? I mean, um... Did they actually also use tablets with, um, wax on them? Eventually, yeah. I just remember Plato mentioning them in one of, was it the Theatetus or something? Wax yes. tablets. Yes. Memory is like a... Yes, so this is what is comes memory along. more like a wax tablet or like a cage full of canaries? Yes. Anyway. Yeah, well, so here we go. So these are all permanent, right? So tablets, of course, clay tablets are absolutely permanent. Um, but mm-hmm. papyrus and parchment, you can scrape, right? So you can erase a word by scraping it off. And this yeah. happens all the time. Um, and yes, around the same time as we get paper, we are also absolutely getting wax tablets. And that, of course, is for, they're used in schools, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, they're used... Oh, the same way you use, we use chalkboards later on. Yes. Because right? you can write stuff down and then... Yes, and then you it. just smooth over the wax and you write again. Um, they're, of course, used for... They are used very early. Um, essentially, this is how, you know, you start your records on your wax tablet. You tote everything up so you make sure you know what you're doing. And then you transfer it to maybe your clay tablet or your papyrus. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And that way you are less likely to make a mistake because you're basically copying what you've already figured out, right? So you do your record keeping or your math or stuff like this on your wax tablet. You write it up in your permanent record, and then you just smooth over your wax tablet and go on to the next thing. Um, sure. And that's, of course, really helpful. It's helpful if you are if you have clay tablets, obviously, because then, you know, those dry. So you can't really make a mistake. I mean, you can, but, like, <laughs> you need to kind of get that right the first time. Yes. Um, and but even when we get you know to papyrus and then eventually to parchment, um, it's still right to make a fair copy is always the thing right to make a nice copy of something. So you you want your records to be nice, you want your documents to be nice. Um, so yeah, wax that's what wax tablets are for. They're basically the early notepad. Um, and the scroll you can make scroll out of a papyrus sheet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just keep pasting them together. Your scrolls can get very 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 long. Um, parchment, of course, the thing about parchment has always been that it's much more expensive. Papyrus grows fat. I mean, it's a plant that grows really well. Yeah. So this is why scrolls are generally papyrus. Obviously, a Torah scroll is supposed to be parchment. It's not papyrus. But, um, those are really expensive, right? So it's not that parchment doesn't exist as a technology by now. It does, right? And by now, we're getting into, um... You know, the 500s, 400s BCE, we're moving into Rome, the 300s, the 200s, papyrus scrolls, parchment exists, but, um, you know, it is expensive. So, um, yes, but schools have libraries, which we sort of talked about. Um, And schools, of course, are kind of same as today. I mean, (laughs) you send kids to learn stuff and to do gymnastics and whatever, um, and wrestling. Mm-hmm. running, things like this. Anyway, yeah. right. So Aristotle and Plato, and of course, they've got their schools and they've got little libraries to teach their kids. Um, and this is, this. we sort of talked about this, right? This is one of the other big functions of the library, originally for scribes to learn stuff. Um, and then 
eventually, you know, yeah, that moves out sort of into the world. You teach your population. Um, generally speaking, still, of course, a lot of it has to do with class. But the further we move through time, the more <laughs> literacy exists widely. Right. And sometimes in ways that are a little surprising. So um, once we start to get into um, Greece and then Rome, a lot of places, we're talking about city-states. So this is a world of city-states. Um, you do start to find a lot of places where people kind of are expected at a certain level of society to read and write. So when we're talking about the earliest libraries in Mesopotamia and sort of the, you know, the areas of the Middle East, um, not even royalty necessarily can read, right? Scribes are kind of a special group. Um, and we talked about some kings who could read and were very proud of it. <laughs> but it's mm -hmm. not, right? But as we start to head a little bit down into time, um, which is things like, you know, classical Athens, in the 500s, when we've got all the plays written. Um, and then Alexander, right? He's tutored by Aristotle. This is a time when the upper classes absolutely are expected to be able to read and write. Um, so you do have people doing their, you know, doing the work. Um, there are frequently scribes who are doing the work, record keepers. Sometimes these people are enslaved people who are doing all this mm -hmm. work. Um, they might be freed for it. Um, I think Cicero, uh, the slave who was the head of his library at some point, like escaped with a bunch of scrolls that he stole. Oh, wow. Yeah, and okay. he was, like, trying to hunt him down. It's not clear that he ever found him. <laughs> um, but I think Cicero says in a letter, I'm pretty sure this is Cicero, we'll put it in the notes, um, that he, that the, as he was escaping, some this guy somewhere ran into some people who sort of questioned him, and he was sort of like, oh, Cicero freed me. And they were like, oh, okay, that makes sense, you know. You worked his library, whatever. <laughs> and Cicero's kind of yeah. pissed, I think, that he's like, yeah. people believed him. Um, <laughs> but anyway. Oh, no. So so the, in this sense, though, right, this is a guy who was educated, right? So there was a sort of expectation of people being educated. Um, obviously, the upper classes, but also people who worked for them. Even people who might be enslaved who worked for them, right? Um, and famously, like Terence, the playwright, from North Africa, writes in Latin, um, but he he's enslaved. Yeah, absolutely. And he's and freed. freed. Yeah, because of his, you know, talent, basically. Um, but yeah, so literacy becomes definitely a currency. It is out there. Um, but so we have, right, scrolls is kind of the going thing at the moment. Scrolls are a lot easier to collect than tablets. So that's a real plus on the side of libraries, mm. <laughs> right? They're yes. easier to collect. They're easier to store. They're much lighter than tablets. If you fall down when you're carrying them, they don't shatter. They do not. Yeah. The problem, of course, is fire, because while fire bakes tablets, it definitely destroys papyrus. Mm -hmm. um, but for purposes of shelving and storage and all these things, um, it's fantastic, right? The problem, of course, is that with scrolls is that you have to unroll them all the way to know what is on them, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you, if you unroll it only partway... You still don't know, like, is that the only text on this scroll? Is there more? Ah, uh, yes. So, um, it is worth pointing out, this is, this is where Alexandria really comes in. It's the perfect point, right? Because um, I think we ended last time with Alexander. He's tutored by Aristotle. Um, he wishes he had Homer. There is no Homer. 
to write about him and we sort of discussed this like oh, no one ever really yeah. wrote a great epic about him it did occur to me that there's like handle <laughs> alexander's feast which i love dearly but mm. i wouldn't call that like i mean i love it but i wouldn't call it like a great epic about we, alexander so um, anyway we just named our second child's middle name after alexander so so he, he got, got that. that yeah yeah awesome well there we are then see um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yes and i remember we had left it with like like even um even when Achilles or Hector, you know, that like Shakespeare, you know, portrays Achilles as kind of evil. Um, yeah. That, but you know, they're still so fate like, so I do see where he's coming from. But here's the fun part. All right. So he dies young, famously in 323 BCE. Um, he's conquered kind of the known world at the time. Um, the Ptolemies get Egypt, right? So his Everything he conquered is kind of divided up amongst his generals, and the Ptolemies get Egypt, um, which is good for them, I suppose, but also definitely great, I mean, sort of for history. We get Cleopatra, but more specifically for Alexandria, which is obviously a new city-ish, right? Um, Right. Because Alexander came in and was like, city, for me. Yes. Um, So... What should we name it? Yes, exactly. (laughs) You tell Um, me. Yes. Now, luckily, the Ptolemies, we're, they are um, like Alexander, right? They really treasure, this is, you know, a great thing. And we, we want this to happen for governments. Leaders who really treasure the arts and literacy and intellectual progress. Yay. Yeah. Yes. So they want to turn Alexandria into a cultural center basically, right? The light of the known world. Um, And what they end up creating is something, you know, Alexander did not have a Homer, but he did get Alexandria and the Library of Alexandria in his name, right? So arguably, he kind of gets what he wants a little bit. Um, Ptolemy I comes up with this whole plan. It's not clear how much of it he managed to put in, you know, to sort of actual effect but um certainly by Ptolemy the second we get the actual building of a lot of this stuff uh and what they do is create a sort of hub for intellectuals um they are you know <laughs> leading this part of the known world so they have money and clout and power and armies um a lot of things that convince people to move to your city right how do you convince people to move to new york or paris um yeah. Well, like, come work on Broadway or come work at the Met or come, you know. Well, what if you don't, if you have to found those, though. So if you don't have them yet, you have to create them. Uh, And this is what they do. So they create the the museum, which is where we get the term museum. Um, Originally, of course, a museum had been a place for the muses, probably a temple, Hmm. you know. Um, And in this case, that's where it comes from. But they think of it as essentially a place where intellectuals will hang out. Um, and it also becomes a collection of stuff, not necessarily like art specifically, um, but definitely stuff like knowledge. So intellectuals and also texts. So the museum includes the Library of Alexandria, actually maybe a couple libraries, um, but together they are considered this is the Library of Alexandria. So it's part of this museum. Um, and they basically convince and pay and, you know, cajole people to come (laughs) and um the library of alexandria is probably founded around 300 
We're still in the BCEs, of course. So, you know, just a couple decades after the death of Alexander. Um, And it becomes historic for so many reasons. So first off, um, it we talked about Ashurbanipal's library, which is kind of the most famous before that. Um, but that was still really for the king, right? He was very proud of it. He deserved to be proud of it. But, um, you know, in Greece, again, like Plato and Aristotle are putting together their own stuff. Lots of, you know, famous people have collected. But these are still sort of private personal collections, right? Um, even Ashurbanipal, like, he's definitely seizing stuff from other people. Um, but the Ptolemies suddenly have access that, you know, people before could only dream of. There's a lot more writing that exists at the point, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in Ashurbanipal's time, not as much had been written down, just quite basically, right? So at this point, we have a lot of stuff that's been written. Um, and the Ptolemies have the people to go take it, <laughs> basically. Uh-huh. Um and they do. So they also, of course, get people to come write stuff for them, copy stuff for them. And some of the fun things that happen, um, <laughs> they, um, y- libraries did kind of work on the borrowing system. I think we said this, like that a library might send a work to be copied, or you could send mm-hmm. money to them and pay them to copy a work. Well, Tommies have all these people working for them. Um, and so they absolutely, they send to places, the work will get sent to them. <laughs> um, what happens is uh, they tended to copy, they'd copy it, and then they'd keep the original and send the copy back. Oh. Yeah. And in some that. cases, they were willing to pay huge fines to do this, um, which is to say they'd already, s- you kind of sent a ransom. Like, sometimes if it was a really Mm -hmm. important text, you had to send extra money that would be sent back when you returned it, right? Okay. You know, this is the sort of, as opposed to libraries today where you have to pay, you know, if you don't return it, they charge you money. fine. Yeah, this Mm -hmm. is more of a ransom. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, if you bring this back, then we will send you your money back, but... It's like putting a deposit down. Yes, exactly. Um, And so, yeah, the Ptolemies were willing to give up the money in a lot of cases, to keep the originals. And, of course, the point is that every time you copy a text, um, the mistakes are made, right? And so this is why it, they wanted the oldest versions of texts they could find, because then they have presumably the mm-hmm. fewest mistakes, right? The fewest copier, copyist errors, basically. Sure. Um, and so this is why they'd copy it themselves and then keep the original and send back the copy. <laughs> Uh, which is brilliant. Anyway, so, I mean, kind of terrible, but kind of brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. So, one of the things that happens, Xenodotus is the first director of this library. Um, and he is, you know, we've talked about previous librarians who came up with things like the sort of giving things a title, stuff like this. Well, mm-hmm. he's got all these scrolls. And he starts to come up with what we would consider modern classification. Um, so the order of things, right? Because order of things. How do you classify stuff? Well, um, he broke things up basically by subject um, and also by things like prose or verse. Okay. Um, was it literature? Was it science? So suddenly we're really getting classifications like we're sort of used to today, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, if a scroll contained a lot of works, if there's sort of a compilation, um, he would write out, like, you know, this is what it is, and then he sort of put things on the appropriate shelves, um, arranging things alphabetically by author. So, as far as we know, he is the first person to do this. Yes, he comes up with the idea of arranging things alphabetically. Um, We are, of course, now working with the Greek alphabet, which is an alphabet. Yeah. Ta-da. Right? So this is <laughs> this is historic. This is a historic moment. Um, it's only by first letter. It's not until, I think, like the second century AD, potentially. It's a while. It's a few hundred years before, like, full alphabetization comes in. Sure. But nonetheless, right? So now we're suddenly organizing things by, by alphabet, by author, which is amazing. So one of the other things... He does. Um, he's got enough scrolls, he can actually categorize things kind of by room, right? So, um, you know, verse in here, prose in here, science in there. And he might be responsible for another famous project that comes out of the Library of Alexandria, which is um, they're getting texts from everywhere, sometimes by force, sometimes by ransom, sometimes by whatever. <laughs> they're copying all these texts. One of the things that happens is they end up with these this big collection of the texts of Homer. And they ultimately end up with a lot of texts from a lot of people. But Homer is the one where they sort of start, which has become, this is standard practice now, but they compare all the texts and they start to come up with a standardized version of Homer. Oh, that's fantastic. Right? So what are the oldest texts we've got? Huh. What do they say? What are the differences among all our copies? What do we think should be the standard text of Homer? Yeah. Um, and so this may have been um, under Xenodotus's leadership um, that this project starts. And it continues, you know, down the sort of centuries that the library is around with other writers. But Homer, of course, is the greatest sort of of the time. So they start with him. Um, but yeah, so this idea of coming up with a standardized text and of looking at variations between texts and trying to yeah. figure out what the standard text should be so that's a huge gift there's actually a machine at uh uw up in the special collections department that lets you look at two texts simultaneously yes famously i think it was made for looking at editions of shakespeare originally right yes the first flow yeah um So that you could comp- you put one edi- one copy on one side and one copy on the other side, and it has like mirrors, and then it's essentially like looking into a um, microscope or something, right? Like you look into the eyepiece, and it imposes the pages over each other, mm-hmm. and then you can see where there's differences. Yes, yes. Yeah, or potentially just give yourself a migraine. I'm not. I'm not sure. Like I've had it described to me. I've never tried it. <laughs> yeah, um, isn't it Hinman? I think who came up with it. Yeah, that might be right. Maybe the Hin- Hinman for um, for Hinman, who was sort of the scholar who I think invented it. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, yeah, it's st- it's still. Like, what else are you going to do? You're going to look at all the variations, and then various scholars will come up with what they think is right. But this is sort of the first time we get that kind of idea of a, you know, what they would have considered, what we still kind of consider, in some ways, a scientific method (laughs) for editing a text, essentially. Right? For coming up with a standard text. What are the words? What are the variations? 
Yeah. Um, so this comes out of the Library of Alexandria. Uh, one of the other big things that comes out of the Library of Alexandria, um, Callimachus of Cyrene creates what he calls um, pinakes, which means like lists or tables. Um, and this is a detailed survey of all of the Greek writings, certainly in the library, maybe beyond even. Um, but it filled about 120 books. So five times as long as the Iliad. Wow. Um, and it was, he wrote a few of these. Um, and basically the basis of this was a, sh- a shelf list, which was essentially a card catalog. Mm-hmm. But of course, there weren't cards yet. <laughs> or even catalogs. I mean, he's kind of creating the first one, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, what he does is he writes down, so all of the works, he alphabetizes it, um, and he he categorizes it based at least the foundational basis is clearly how the Library of Alexandria um, divided things by subject. So, for example, um, there's poetry, and then poetry is broken into subdivisions like dramatic poets, epic poets, lyric poets, um, and dramatic poets would then be further subdivided into comedy and tragedy. Right? Okay. Um, there's even a miscellaneous category for things like cookbooks, which tells you how long cookbooks have been around. Yeah. <laughs> um, and once you got into the sort of, you know, final category, so let's say comedy, um, then he listed the authors by alphabetical order. Um, so hmm. someone like Aristophanes is going to be pretty near the top. Uh, and you would get sort of um, a biographical sketch of the author. So the little author blurb. Right? Maybe useful details to distinguish that person from someone else with the same name, because everyone kind of has the same name, which is why you get things like, you know, Callimachus himself of Cyrene, because other mm-hmm. people are from other places, you know. Um, and then tell you a little about them, like, where are they from? What did they study? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then would list all of the author's works also in alphabetical order, <laughs> oh. which now we kind of take for granted almost, but which is astonishing. Yeah. So he alphabetized He's, everything. I this is yeah. an amazing project. Like yeah. I can't even imagine doing this with having a computer for the number of books that are in my house. Yep. And yeah. like I have a lot of books, but like I think not like a huge number compared to your average library. Like it's mm-hmm. definitely a large personal collection, but would be very small for a lending library. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and even for something like the Library of Alexandria, which, you know, would be small compared to, like, the Library of Congress, obviously, or the British Library, but was certainly huge, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and so he's got – and this list, so we don't have a lot of it, but we know about it, right? Because, of course, people made copies and people talked about it. So it's his list that tells us, first of all, how many works were probably in the Library of Alexandria – particularly Mm -hmm. by people like Aeschylus and Euripides, Sophocles, and why, when it burned, we have a sort of sense of how many of their works we may have lost, right? Mm -hmm. Because we we know they all wrote, like, hundreds of plays. But um, his list, there's a list of Aeschylus's plays that might go back as far as Callimachus. Like, that would make sense. And it has Mm -hmm. 73 titles. So that would suggest, you know, Aeschylus definitely wrote more plays than that, probably, but... um, Definitely, probably. I mean, he most likely wrote way more plays than that. But um, that would mean that by the time you get to the Library of Alexandria, which is 300, so this is 
um, you know, 150 years after, you know, well, he's dead, basically, after he's been writing. Um, sure. That they have at least 73 of his plays. And now we have, like, four and a fifth that's, um, you know, attributed to him, but he probably didn't write. Um, so that's, right, so it's things like that that kind of tell mm-hmm. us what we lost, yeah. probably, when the library burned. Um, Euripides, um, probably also around that number. We know, he, again, he wrote hundreds of plays, but that they had at least probably around the same number. Um, and we have, you know, in the high teens for him, and same for Sophocles, um, who had well over a hundred titles probably on Calamicus's list. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, that's, so that's sort of how, when people say things like what we must have lost when the library burned, this is how we know because of stuff like this, right? It gives us a sense of how much was still around at this time and what that library presumably had. Um, and so, um, for example, the complete works of Theophrastus, <laughs> um, Calamicus's entry had apparently probably like 219 titles. Um, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> there was a lot. So yeah, this was a really impressive work um, and alphabetized and told you where you could find this work in the library, which of course wow. is where the card okay. catalog part comes in. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like what room or shelf or number, etc. it was on. Um, we don't know how he handled authors who would write in multiple categories, right? Oh, yeah. Um, like, what if you wrote both prose and verse? Or So we don't know what he did with that. Um, so there are some things we don't know, but clearly he did have a system. Um, and a lot of it has come down to us. Um, also, based possibly sort of on his tables, obviously we've run into previous word lists that we discussed a little bit. But this is where you start to get also what we would kind of call dictionaries, basically. People compiling word lists um, with definitions. So not just the words, but also with the definitions. Um, and so there is this sense of really trying to categorize all this knowledge. Yeah. Um, so all of this, right, the Library of Alexandria. Um, there's some other things that come in from here as people are writing things down. So little things um, uh, like certain dots for punctuation, a lot of this happens around the standardization of Homer, oh, um, where you should, okay. like, stop when you're reading it and stuff mm-hmm. like this. <laughs> um, and, of course, these are things that then eventually turn into punctuation marks, as we would call them, right? That originally are more with the assumption that you're reading something aloud. Um, and so they're kind of, like, more like musical I notes. I guess that makes level, sense. Right? Yeah. I remember being told that a comma meant kind of like you take a breath here. Mm-hmm. That's so, literally sort of yeah. where that started. Yes. The original mark that presumably turned into the comma. That was the point. Yeah. That also kind of makes sense to me putting um, in Spanish the upside down exclamation point or question mark at the beginning of the sentence. Yes. Because then so as you're you know. reading the sentence, you know how to say it. Yep. So that you know it's a question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it's worth, re- I think we've mentioned Paul Sanger's silent reading essay about mm-hmm. the Middle Ages, um, but the idea that silent reading appears in the Middle Ages partly because word separation happens, mm-hmm. right? That you no longer have to read something out loud to figure out where the words are, <laughs> um, that now words are actually separate. There's a space between words. 
So it's very Some easy languages to... are still written without spaces between words, like mm-hmm. Thai, Thai and um, Chinese often are both like that. Yeah. And reading the sentence aloud is one way to start learning when you're, you know, learning the language, how to break it up into words. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that is essentially the, the sort of the argument, part of the argument in silent reading is that um, silent reading and the spaces between words in the Middle Ages kind of go along together in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so things like the comma, a lot of the stuff comes out of the Library of Alexandria, comes out of them editing Homer. Um, this whole idea of categorization. Um, and I, I did want to give a shout out, by the way. So we talked a little bit, of course, Dewey Decimal, Library of Congress, um, the various types of things you've got. The British Library, <laughs> um, which, of course, was part of the British Museum until the 1970s. So I just want to point out the way the Library of Alexandria was part of the overall museum complex right? The British Library was also part of the British Museum, and now it's its own thing. Um, but Is it still inside the building? No, they built Am themselves I a nice new building. Bring it? Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, they do have collections in the museum, you know, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, they have their nice new place that has also places for manuscripts and all stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, okay. That they built themselves, yes. But... Um, their their system, which is kind of hilarious, uh, it is things are still categorized, not everything, but I mean like um, manuscripts, essentially, like older texts, like manuscripts or scrolls or things like this, um, are categorized by the collection of the person who originally owned them when the British Library got them, basically. Mm. Um, and so, which is how you get things like MS Cotton. Right. Manuscript cotton. Uh-huh. Okay. It's from his collection. And the cotton ones are even funnier because he categorized his library based on um, he had busts of famous people on his shelves. And he categorized his what? manuscripts based on... So, like, Cotton Tiberius. <laughs> it's going to be one of the famous ones. Um, oh. oh, my gosh. Yeah. And... Yeah, because it was, you know, by a statue of Tiberius. Um, yes. So anyway. <laughs> um, and the British Museum, British Museum, British Library still categorizes um, all of this, yeah, the same way. You know, when I took cataloging in um, library school, we talked about different ways that people have of arranging their books, right? Mm-hmm. Some people do them by... Subject by uh, color. Mm-hmm. A lot of people like to do them by the color of the spine. Uh, one person I met had done hers um, to balance the bookshelf better so it didn't tip over. Awesome. But um, <laughs> yes, all these things are great. Yes. Busts of famous people is a new one on me. Yep. Well, you know, you'd go and you'd know who's there, right? So yeah. there you go. Sure. Yeah. Um, the M.S. Cotton Vitellius, uh, for the Beowulf script, I believe. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so anyhow, so it's this great thing, right, that those collections have been kind of got, uh, basically imported into the British Library directly, right? Mm -hmm. So the British Library numbers them, of course, they're all carefully, but 
that is still their designation. And the sort of wonderful okay. thing about it is that it actually preserves kind of the history of the cataloging, right? Mm-hmm. Only as far back as the last person who had it. But yeah. um, well, but there's something interesting is, about that. It's, yeah. it's treating it like an archival document, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. By preserving the, the provenance. Yes. And then I'm sure that if they had more details of the chain of custody from, you know, from cotton on back, they would... Right. Have oh, that. those are in the catalog. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And now, of course, for those who are wondering, um, catalog entries can run. I mean, they're their own books at this point um, because of things like provenance and all that stuff. Yeah. You just mm-hmm. keep listing, listing, listing where things are and you describe the manuscript. Um, but this is so we've seen sort of the rise of that right all the way through the li- Library of Alexandria, which really um, starts to get things off to where we know them today, which is shelving things by sort of subject alphabetically all this stuff. Um, dividing poetry and prose, right? Dividing science from literature. I mean, we, so we start to get all of these ideas. Um, and of course, this comes out of the Greek world. So if you think of like Aristotle and all of his subject books, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. ethics Category, and yeah. philosophy. And, yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So the idea that these are now things that people write about in their own right, and they get their own shelves. Um, and so you put all the papyri on the shelf in ways that then you just, you know, you number them. So you look through and you know which number is which thing. So you don't have to unroll each one. Right? Because you've got your little catalog mm-hmm. that's its own scroll <laughs> that is like, you know, this manuscript by this person is manuscript number whatever in room, shelf, whatever. And then you can go find it, which of course is what people do today. Right? Um, the other fun thing is the kind of the growth of what we would call probably the reading room. Um, previous libraries, we sort of talked like originally, some of the really old ones, right? Um, with the clay tablets are, are part of the records room, essentially, the, the working records room where you're recording all the tribute that comes in. And there's a little shelf for like the literary works. Um, and that slowly changes, you know, as you've got schools, but the stuff is all shelved somewhere. People occasionally work on it and read it. But, um, now we get the rise of the sense of a library as a working public institution. And this is the new, brand new thing, right? That this is a public library. Um, it is there for people to use. Intellectuals are supposed to come. It is not the Ptolemies found it and pay for it and put a lot of money into it, but it is not their private library. And this is the real kind of extraordinary thing because even, you know, the school libraries, like for Aristotle's you know, mm-hmm. Lyceum or whatever, um, Plato's Academy, um, those are technically private. I mean, you know, belong to them. Um, so now the sense of a public library where people come and it's got this, you know, great complex where intellectuals are having discussions and you can sit and read things and copy them. Um, yeah, that's the sort of, that is what we think of a library today. Um, and you know, that's, it's still a fancy library, like, <laughs> but that is how libraries work today, right? You go and you get things off the stacks and you go sit at the table and maybe there are beanbag chairs and you hang out and you do your thing, right? Yeah. So this is where we really see the rise of that idea. Um, 
And I miss those days of being able to like go out of the house to do your yes. thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. I got to say, be like, honest. ancient library saw a lot of plagues, a lot of fires. They all came back. So it's yeah. good. I mean, the exact same library might not have, but libraries in general may had, you know, <laughs> they survived, right? So anyway, so this is really the, um, the origin of this idea. So um, from here, <laughs> basically, um, we probably go to Rome, certainly to the Roman world. And the sort of interesting thing is that this remains a little bit unusual, right? So Rome, um, at least while it's a republic, um, still tends to have libraries that are private. So we sort of mentioned Cicero's library. His library is private. It's his own library. Um all of his friends who are richer and more famous and stuff, not more famous, but richer and higher class, um, they have their own awesome library. And when he needs texts that aren't in his library, he goes to their libraries. Right. So people are allowed in and out, but they're like your private library and you let your friends in, but people can't just wander in off the street to a library. Um, so we do have the rise of, again, widespread sense of libraries the idea of libraries becoming much more widespread, right? We get the sort of sudden proliferation of libraries where they mm -hmm. used to be almost solely royal, right? Maybe belong, you know, maybe temples, priests had access and stuff, but still, they're like really just for certain groups of people. Um, then they start to widen. So schools, right? You do get to start little mini private libraries for schools and for the upper class and stuff. Alexandria, suddenly you have this public library that's this extraordinary thing and they're collecting every work that they can find. They're standardizing texts. They're coming up with the idea that you pause in certain places when reading things, because that's the right thing to do. Um, they're alphabetizing. They're dividing by subject and by category. Um, they're using scrolls as their primary technology, because it's clearly so much easier and cheaper <laughs> and lighter sure. and all of these things. Um, this will become, of course, super unfortunate when the Library of Alexandria burns. However... Um, as we head into Rome, the idea of the public nature doesn't catch on, but the idea of the library as a thing you should have absolutely starts to proliferate, right? So suddenly libraries become much more common. You can't, okay. and this is, you know, we still get this like in Jane Austen, everybody's got a library. Mm -hmm. Darcy talks about how much he, you know, what he adds to his library every year, how much money he spends on it and stuff, right? Um, so this is, this is really important, um, but again, they're all private, right? Uh, Caesar, Julius, apparently has the idea that he's going to create a public library. He's probably looking at Alexandria, um, or what is now kind of, you know, the, yeah, light of the world. He gets assassinated, <laughs> which actually was that couple weeks ago, I guess. Um, yeah, just about yes. two and a half weeks. Yeah. And um, so... That is not the end of the idea, though. Um, we do get some public libraries. Uh, you know, some of the people who followed him and now follow Augustus and Augustus himself. Um, so Augustus establishes a couple libraries. So we do end up getting a few public libraries in Rome. Um, and this is a really kind of big moment as well, because now libraries are not just dividing everything by subject and everything else. Um, we are keeping the Alexandria um, layout of stacks plus reading room. So you definitely want people to come and to read. 
Um, but libraries are also bilingual because hmm. you have to have Greek texts because that's what's what, right? Right. <laughs> but you also definitely have to have Latin texts because you, this is Rome, right? And we do have stuff being written in Latin. Famously, mm -hmm. some very good stuff is being written in Latin. So um, there is suddenly, right, you start to get libraries as we kind of think of them, which is, again, right, we're collecting the way we think of libraries. But now we get the sense of collecting the important texts of the past, right? Homer, and what you can get at this point of like, you know, the playwrights or, right, but so all of the Greek poets, um, the thinkers, right? Plato, Aristotle, all these people. But now you also have modern texts, right? Contemporary works, as it were, that are written in a different language, um, and they get their own space. So there's a Greek section okay. and a Latin section. I really want to say Roman section, but of course, Latin. <laughs> so there's yeah. a Greek section and a Latin section. Um, yeah, so this um, brings us to, back around to the wax tablet, Rome... Right? Everyone's supposed to have your own private library. Widespread literacy in a lot of general ways. Um, again, right, even sometimes, you know, enslaved people came from a lot of areas, so they may well have been educated even before they were enslaved. Some of them do manage to have an education when they're enslaved. Um, so you have this sort of widespread literacy. And one of the things they do um, is their wax tablets... Um, and just wooden tablets generally are kind of treated like notebooks. Um, and you would have a few of them. They might have wax or they might have papyrus, and you would um, tie them together. So if you had papyrus, it would be like pasted mm. onto the wood, and you'd tie them together. And then you'd have like a couple quote-unquote pages, but they're wood, right? Um, yeah. Of tablet. And somebody realizes <laughs> that you can do this with papyrus. It does uh -huh. not have to come in a scroll form. You could, in fact, f just flatten it into pages and tie them together. Hmm. And so Rome seems to invent the codex, basically. Wow. Um, okay. It's mentioned by Marshall, the poet, um, in the first century. And um, yeah, this is where we first hear of it. It catches on really fast. Because unlike a scroll, you can write on both sides of a page. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, and it's a fantastic technology because you can be reading a codex. You can stick your finger in one section and keep going. Or you can just hold down the codex with one hand while you're copying it with your other hand. Right? A mm -hmm. scroll, you have to open and like put stones on it so that you can see the whole thing and then copy it. Or see at least part of it and copy it. Right? Because um, otherwise you need two hands to hold it open, obviously. But a codex, you only need one. What? Sometimes if it's made well, it will just lie open by itself, which is the sign of a well-made manuscript. So this is amazing, right? You only need one hand. <laughs> you can, like, hold your place. You can look yeah. back and forward at, like, two different things at the same time and compare them. So many things you can do with books, all of which we still appreciate them for today. Things that you yeah. can't necessarily do on a tablet. And by tablet, of course, I mean iPad. <laughs> <laughs> in this case, <laughs> we're jumping yes. forward to a technology that is very old, but very new at the same time. Um, when you're reading things on a tablet or a Kindle or whatever, you cannot hold your finger in one spot and like look at some other page. You can't go back That's by true. flipping the pages. Yeah. 
All right, so all the things we appreciate books for. <laughs> Interesting now that they chose that name to call them. Oh, yeah. Tablets. I don't think there's a mistake at all. Yeah. Tablets are tablets. No. I mean, that's yeah. that's exactly. Yeah, we've kind of reverted, except, of course, instead of wax, it's, you know, digital. And it can actually hold a gazillion books. Maybe not quite yet, but we're, we're working on it. Um, mm-hmm. Which, of course, again, makes it much more portable, which is the point of a codex. Right, it's it's much more portable because they can be made. You can make um, what you would need a much longer scroll for because you can write on both sides of a page. You need a much shorter codex. You need half the amount mm-hmm. of papyrus or parchment. But again, parchment's much more expensive, so papyrus. Um, yeah. So the rise of the codex is fantastic, um, and one of the groups that really takes to it <laughs> um, is Christianity. Aha! Uh-huh. Very interested in the codex. Um, as a means of, you know, copying the Bible, right? Um, which, of course, is a large... The Jews are still, are still even today, using scrolls yes. that we write out by hand yep. on parchment. Yes. So... Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, the codex, it is, obviously, right, for a book of that size... A codex works much, much, much better because mm-hmm. you you can have one codex instead of however many scrolls, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing, of course, is that you can tie things together. So um, let us say that you have a codex of, um, you know, revelations. <laughs> <laughs> um, you could tie it together with commentaries on revelations right you can like fasten them together and then they'll all stay together Mm -hmm. in a nice book and they won't go anywhere and so on right so there's also this way in which you suddenly realize like um because you can fit so much more stuff into a codex than you could on a scroll compilations suddenly right the possibilities for compilations grow (laughs) basically Mm -hmm. um you could, of course, scrolls could have compilations, but for something that's really long, you can't even fit it on one scroll because it's going to be way too unwieldy. Um, but now, you know, a codex can kind of grow forever on some level. Um, and when you're storing it, you just store them all in a big stack, right? So unlike, yeah. again, papyri on a shelf where you kind of are piling them up and you have to be careful, like if you pull one in the wrong way, you're going to get a big cascade of papyri down on you, which isn't terrible, but it can be harmful for them and you, you know have to put them all back. Um, A big stack of books, you just, you pull one book off the shelf, right? Um, Books could also be stored, you know, kind of anywhere. And of course, I mean codex, but, um, and so there are also examples um, as we head into the world of monasteries, which is where libraries go, of course. Um, There's shelves. (laughs) Um, There are, of course, uh, book stands, for books that are regularly used in red, you chain them to book stands. There are trunks, basically. You know, like a chest. Um, where you might put them all in, where you can, you know, spine up. And the best thing about this, of course, is the spine. You just face the spine out, and you can have the title on it. And not only the title, but, like, the volume. I mean, how many... You see so all that information that you used to have to put somewhere else, you can now have directly on the text itself. Right, you put it on the spine of the book, nice. and it can say, "This is a commentary by Jerome," you know, and this is the first volume of it. <laughs> um, and there's another volume somewhere, 
or, you know, this commentary by Jerome that's part of a set of whatever, or mm-hmm. something, something, right? Um, it can tell you that it's only in one volume. All these things, right? And you just put it right on the spine, and then you just know. Um, so all of this is super helpful. And the codex, you know, I mean, there's a reason that's still kind of the standard technology for books. A book is a codex, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, because that, yeah, the storage possibilities, the durability, <laughs> all of these things are fantastic. Um, and so what happens is um, the idea of the library and literacy, um, it's a becomes in Europe, it becomes a kind of combination of a continuation of what's been happening in the Roman world with the addition of Christianity, right? The amazing thing about this is that obviously Christianity is a religion that depends on a text. Mm-hmm. Judaism is as well, right? But <laughs> the sort of um, marriage, ultimately, between Christianity and the Roman Empire, right? An empire that really believes in texts and a religion that believes in texts. Um, you need a lot of people who are able to read texts, copy texts. You want to keep text places. And you have the rise specifically of monasticism, which we've sort of talked about before. Um, we talked about it in a lot of other ways, sort of the culture of it and the asceticism and all of these things. Um, but part of the rule was um, going all the way back to St. Benedict, who of course is kind of the, I mean, he's not the beginning, but the Benedictine rule is kind of the er rule of yeah. <laughs> monasticism. And he wanted he, to straighten that out. Yes. Um, and he requires reading, individual mm-hmm. reading and reading aloud during meals. Um, and the idea is, you know, you read aloud during meals so people can't like gossip idly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also individual reading, right? So mm-hmm. that, um, and that means that everybody has to be able to read. Now, people were definitely servants at Benedictine monasteries and tertiary brothers who are working the fields, they're probably not getting the education, ultimately. Um, But nonetheless, right, in this rule is the sense that people are supposed to be able to read this stuff for themselves. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And in order to have all this reading going on, you have to have libraries. Um, And so... You do. You get the rise of libraries in monasteries and obviously convents. And that means, of course, the rise of places where in order to have a library, you have to copy books, right? You either copy them and send them to someone else or someone sends them to you, copy them, you send them back. Same thing as is going on with Alexandria, right? You have to copy it. So the rise of, you know, the scriptorums, all this stuff, right? The rise of illumination slowly, right? The, so the, Books, this is what really turns books into the kind of industry that we have today. I mean, mm-hmm. graphic novels and everything else, right? Um, and there are some great sort of examples of books. Of course, these are from the British Library <laughs> because, you know, it's where things turn out. But anyway, um, where you can sort of trace them through monasteries, um, and abbeys and so on. Um, so, for example, um, the sort of the proof that monasteries probably borrowed things from each other. <laughs> there is a monastery. So, St. Peter, 
the Abbey of St. Peter, um, was destroyed in a fire in 1116. Um, and then they started to rebuild it, and they had to replace all their texts, right? All the books that burned. Um, and there's a 12th century, so this is the 12th century, right? The 1100s. Um, there's a 12th century collection of scientific works um, that's now in the British Library. Um, it's in two parts. So <laughs> Cotton, Tiberius, <laughs> and Harley. Um, and then there's specific numbers to go with those. We can put that in the notes. But anyway, um, but there you go, right? So, um, and this text, so later it got divided, right? But it had been one text. And it's probably one of the replacement volumes so that they got from somewhere else and copied to replace something that they lost in the fire. Um, and one of the manuscripts actually has part of the um, the annals, essentially, right? The of events from the Abbey, um, and it notes that um, it describes the fire, right? In eleven sixteen, um, says you know the strong flames of a blazing fire completely consumed the monastery and a large part of the adjacent town um, on the second day before oh. the nones of August, and so oh on a Friday. Yeah. Okay. So it'd be like the third or the f- the third or the fourth. The second day. I'm not sure if that means the day before. It would be the fourth. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they tell you there's the fire, and then um, the one of the one of these books um, has a copy <laughs> um, of a variety of texts, and the the copy. Right, so the, from the illustrations and the layout of the text, everything else, are an exact copy of a 9th century manuscript um, that was from F- Fleury, actually, but ended up in the possession of the Abbey of St. Augustine in Canterbury. Okay. So, you know, it was made in Fleury, but it ends up in Canterbury. Um, and now this book from the this abbey, right, the abbey that burned, is an exact replica basically of that text Mm -hmm. um, which is a copy of stuff from like um by cicero and various other people um but the fact that it's this text is an exact copy of the flurry text but was created in the 12th century makes it pretty clear (laughs) that the abbey basically sent to saint augustine canterbury and was like can we have this book to replace the one that we just lost in the fire and then either, you know, and then someone copied it, maybe for them, or sent it to them so that they could copy it. And they basically copied it exactly. Mm-hmm. And so then they had an exact copy. Right. So you can actually see how they went about replacing their um, their lost books. Yeah. Um, and so this is the point at which, um, yeah, there are libraries, you know, libraries are a not just a common thing. Right. Um, but at this point, there's sort of one everywhere, right? Every town has a library because every monastery has a library. The libraries are, generally speaking, kind of kind of private, but open to borrowing, lending. Um, they get books by copying other people's books, by royal gift, all sorts of these things, of course. And I just want to, I know we're sort of running out of time, but um, there's some great evidence. <laughs> so in the late 1600s, I know we've passed out the Middle Ages at this point, but um, uh, an English guy goes to visit Paris and goes to see the library in the Abbey of St. Victor and describes it. Um, and he's really impressed, right? It's got these great, this great gallery to read stuff. It's open three days a week. 
which I have to say is pretty pretty good for a fancy library, kind of even today, really. Um, it has a range In of double Paris, desks. for sure. Yes, exactly. This is why it's so funny. <laughs> anyway, it has a range of double desks through the middle with seats and convenience for writing and all this stuff. Um, the catalog isn't finished, and it's not intended to be printed, which I think is always necessary. Um, so this guy's sort of annoyed. Um, the catalog is being made just for use at the library, and he thinks, like, catalogs should be printed. So this is a point at which we've gotten to the sense of libraries, even if they're not exactly public, like, you know, um, the BN certainly isn't exactly public, but like people should know what's in the library, Mm -hmm. right? This should be available information. Um, And uh, Rabelais, (laughs) in his famous, you know, Life of Gargantua and Pantagruel, which is published between like 1530 and 1560-ish, Pantagruel goes to Paris and goes to the library of St. Victor. (laughs) Hmm. Um, And yeah, and we're given by Rabelais um, an entire um, basically catalog (laughs) um, of all of the books that are there, and it's a complete satire on knowledge, essentially, right? On knowledge, on the ideas of libraries as repositories of knowledge. Um, So some of the books, right, we're told, um, (laughs) this is the repertoire in the catalog of the books that that he sees there. Um, So they have titles like uh, the For the God's Sake of Salvation, The Codpiece of the Law, The Slipshoe of the Decretals, The Pomegranate of Vice, (laughs) (laughs) um, the henbane of the bishops, um, the mustard pot of penance. These sound like cozy mysteries. Yes. Honestly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. The flim flams of the law, the prickle of wine, the spur of cheese. <laughs> yeah. Um, the kettle of magnanimity. Um, okay. Yeah. The snatch fire of the curates. Anyways. So um, the invention of the Holy Cross personated by six wily priests. Alright, um, there's a huge list of these, so I'm just, like, running through some of them. Nice. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, the bald arse or peeled breach of the widows. And honestly, these are originally all in French. Um, yeah. Anyways, so this is, right, so at this by this time, right, so we go through the Middle Ages where libraries just explode into being. We've gone from, like, the public library of Alexandria being this incredibly kind of unique thing to the slow growth of that in Rome, the idea that there should be public libraries, just like there should be public baths, right? Um, and suddenly then the influx of Christianity, but specifically um, the idea from people like Benedict, right? The rule of monasticism that monks, and ultimately, of course, nuns, although Benedict's not necessarily thinking about that, but nuns certainly are thinking about this, right? If monks get to do it, they get to do it. Mm-hmm. Um should be able to read and should have reading material, right? That this is a thing that is required. You are read to and you have to read for yourself. Um, and that, of course, ends up kind of being a big debate. <laughs> How many people should be allowed to read the Bible for themselves? Um, but it's really important, right? Because monasteries then are sort of, and convents, right? Any sort of religious institution is on some level required to have a library. And to have a library, you have to have people who can not only read and write, but also illuminate and make books. Um, And so we get this sort of explosion across Europe, you know, from the 500s on of um, 
the dissemination of texts and the borrowing, the lending, certainly the stealing, <laughs> all of these things <laughs> of texts. Um, and the growth, therefore, also of things like catalogs, because as, you know, the dude says in the 1600s, um, you have to know if, if someone has stolen a book, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and from catalogs, of course, then you can just show people your catalog. Like, these are all the books we have. What do you have? Um, well, how about, you know, we'll copy this if you'll copy that. Um, and you start to get, I mean, this is how libraries work, right? Who has what text? How do you find things? Um, and so, obviously, um, there are plenty of cases in which libraries still don't necessarily know what they have. There was actually... I I just read something, and I meant to like keep the page up, so that I would know what it was. But <laughs> someone, something like, I don't think it's the British Library, but someone recently did acknowledge that they lost something, like twenty years ago. Oh, maybe it was Oxford. I don't know. Interesting. Um, and I was gonna say people routinely discover new manuscripts in the Bodleian. Yes, that's the reverse. Like, right? People be like, Where oh, people... we didn't know we had that. Yes, and that's hey, that's a good it? thing, right? Yeah. Or you yeah. always knew you had this manuscript, but no one had really looked at it to figure out what it was, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, like reading something and saying, "Oh, this is this is the actual book of Marjorie Kemp. This isn't a book that just quotes it. This is it, right? Yeah. Stuff like that. Um, so those things are great, but the reverse of that, you still sometimes might find things, and. Um, in this case, there, there was kind of a big, um, I don't know, what would you say? Museums have this happen as well, right? Where you aren't looking to make sure, like, you, there aren't enough people to always, the collections are too big. You can't always be looking to make sure you have everything these days, right? Um, but the problem that this thing, whatever it was that was lost, it was discovered lost a while ago, probably like a year after it had gone missing, but they did discover it, but they did not publicize it because they were embarrassed. Yeah. And that is a huge problem because you have to let everyone know right away. Otherwise, it's way too late. Right. And so the problem is that. Um, yeah. Oh, is it this? Um, Cambridge okay. University lost two of Darwin's notebooks. There you go. That's probably this it. This yeah. is from, yeah, November 2020. They yep. uh, admitted it, but they went missing yes. 20 years ago. Yep. There you go. Yep. 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 That was it. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, that they sort of, what, they just thought they'd show up, kind of, or they hoped they'd show up, or they probably hoped the person would bring them back. Yeah. But no, you know, and the thing is that because they didn't publicize it for so long, like, at this point, who knows where they are? And yeah. certainly, even someone who might be well-intentioned enough to be like, oh, I bought these, yeah, it was kind of shady, but I didn't know they were stolen from Cambridge, I will bring them back. Um, I mean, at this point, they're not even going to know, because it... I mean, right. <laughs> you know, what's really going to happen again, is like basically. 20 years from now, somebody's going to find them under a bed or something. Yes. Yeah. And be like, I wonder if these are important. Exactly. Yeah. But this is why, yeah, catalogs are necessary, right? Stuff, you got to check it. Mm -hmm. You got to know. You got to, if things are gone, you got to advertise. Um, and so this is sort of where, right, the catalogs that, you know, people like Columbus has sort of started. Um, become really important. Originally, it was just the idea, the whole idea of organizing knowledge was unique. But now it comes to the point where you you don't want to lose it. Right. Um, at the same time, we do have 
Rabelais making fun of the kind of elitism that goes with something like that. You know, now mm-hmm. Darwin's notebooks arguably are potentially important for reasons that are not necessarily elitist. Right. Partly just because, you know, there's still people who, like, don't believe in evolution. Um, but we do understand Rabelais' point that there can be something very elitist about libraries, and certainly certain libraries in Paris, where they do not want to let you in or <laughs> let you look at things or all that stuff. Yes. I mean, that's absolutely true. Um, and something very elitist about knowledge in that way. Like, yes. And that goes to Foucault as well, which is where we started this last time. Um, but... It is sort of interesting that libraries um, really, across Europe, very much um, become standardized because of monasticism, basically. Mm -hmm. Right? So um, the sort of secular library happens in Alexandria, (laughs) happens in Rome, basically, um, and that is the tradition that is clearly kind of... um, the foundation of the monastic library, but the monastic library is definitely not, you know, it has a very specific purpose, but it is nonetheless kind of carrying on this tradition and has the resources that very few others have. Mm -hmm. Because we're talking about the church as a whole, not just individual monasteries. Right. Um, Right. So while there are certainly palace libraries that do well and private collectors who do well, the overall powers of the monasteries in the middle ages are really where the preserve of books happens in Europe. Um, and it's not really until the Renaissance, which, of course, we get the Crusades, we get people bringing back all this stuff from Northern Africa, lots of texts that are rediscovered, quote-unquote, by Europe, Yes. when you suddenly get that jump start back into um, libraries as we think of them, right, um, as maybe more secular public institutions. Um, And we talked previously about the rise of universities that obviously have a hand in that as well, as universities Mm -hmm. differentiate themselves from monastic schools. Um, A lot of this is the plot of The Name of the Rose, right? It is, yes. Where they have a lost... (laughs) Yes. A lost Aristotle. Yep. And, uh, yeah, um, spoiler alert, but the book's been out for, like, 40 years, so... Yes. Sorry. (laughs) And Uh, there's, like, movies and... (laughs) Yes. Well, definitely a movie, maybe a TV thing. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. So we're talking stuff. about the 12th century Renaissance, um, yes. where a lot of things came back from the Islamic world that had been translated. Yep. Yeah. And of course, this arguably helps us get a jump start on um, universities, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, yeah. Um, but that the, the sense of learning that libraries give us. The way in which libraries allow us to think of knowledge as a thing that be, can be collected and that you can become a specialist in and stuff like this, right? That that is kind of preserved through monastic libraries, basically. The monastic system yeah. overall. Um, so, we, yeah, we have people like Benedict to thank for that, which is very cool. Um, and a lot of histories of the library, the reason we sort of spent a little bit less about specific libraries in the Middle Ages is because then there are suddenly so many, right? So there's tons yeah. and tons and tons. Um so, you know, um, we could definitely say things like, you know, you have specific things on books. We talked about what you can get. Um, but like the library at Barry St. Edmunds um, has, you know, certain manuscripts have marginalia telling where they were kept, which presumably means like that's where you're supposed to put them back. So they were like a chest um, or they were kept in the refectory or they're for, you know, to read at hmm. meals or 
you know, stuff like this. So things that were um, liturgical books are presumably kept in the sacristy. Um, so you do get these kind of specific comments, um, you know, but every library, all, to the extent that all the libraries are the same, we had we basically set it up by getting there. And to the extent that they're all different, there are so many of them and it's so specific <laughs> that, you know. Oh, I think one thing I wanted to come back, that you still definitely have curses, by the way. We, we, I know we covered that last time for very early libraries. Oh, yes. Yes. And you still definitely, definitely get curses um, in books where, you know, they're like, if this book is removed, then cursed be, you know, whoever removes or damages this book should be cursed. Um so, like, there's one that we're actually, this is a great example. It's, of course, at the British Library, and we're pretty sure it's from Reading Abbey, um, 13th century. And um, it says in Latin, right, um, that this book belongs to, and then it's been, like, effaced. <laughs> oh. Um, and then it says, anyone who conceals or does damage to it, may he be cursed. <laughs> Uh, and a lot of surviving manuscripts from Reading have that curse. And in this case, um, even though the name of the abbey has been effaced, we're pretty sure it is from Reading because it's, you know, the same style and it looks like that's where it is from. I mean, it's mm -hmm. got the same inscription. Um, but this is a funny, because of course someone clearly did steal it and then scratched out where it was supposedly <laughs> from. <laughs> Didn't scratch out the curse, though, because I guess the idea is if you survive the curse that now it belonged to you... Right, right, kind of like and the one. Anybody who takes it off you will be cursed. Yes, because you scratched the, out the, the transitive power of cursing. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> so that's a great thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. But anyway. So yeah. So But at this point, libraries are, you know, as today, every town has one. It's not necessarily public. Exactly. It's monastic, but, um, you know. You can probably cajole them to let you in or to lend it, or if you, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you go to school there. Um, so, yeah, that's the libraries then exist, of course, as they do today. Yeah. Universities, cool. <laughs> religious institutions, and eventually public as well. All right. Well, getting we're getting pretty long, so yes. I think we're going to have to leave it there. <laughs> Thank you to everyone for listening. Support your local library. Yes, support your local <laughs> library. Pay your overdue fines. Yes. Um, I'm not going to say hug a librarian because they're probably right. a little bit awkward about hugging and also COVID. Give but, them, like, you know, air, air high fives. Air high fives. Yeah, they work awfully hard. Um, yes. You can follow us on Facebook uh, by searching for Ask a Medievalist and following our page. And we put up announcements when we have um, episodes go out. Uh, you can visit our website at askamedievalist.com and uh, check out the show notes there. You can use our contact us form to send us a question. That's pretty much it. Oh, you can send us questions also directly to questions at askamedievalist.com. So uh, thank you for joining us. And until next time, keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff. 
performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com.